my gosh. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> because that's that's my fear. I, I'm bad with uh, last names. I always do that wrong. And, uh, you know, it's what it is. But anyways, hey, guys, it is another Saturday, which means it's time for Spilling Ink. And we are the talk show that takes you behind the book to meet the authors and professionals in the publishing industry. And you might remember this familiar face from a few weeks back. We yeah. have brought her back to give a little bit more of a deep dive into her amazing book, The Soldier's Guide to PTSD, How to No Shit Reclaim Your Life. And we've got a really good topic we're going to dive into today. But before we start, we have to pay homage to our sponsor because we absolutely love Joe with Go Indie Now. Hello, everybody. I am Joe Compton and welcome to our channel, Go Indie Now. This is the place that celebrates indie artists and indie art. And we do so by producing several shows that either air on daily, weekly, monthly, or seasonal scheduling. And within those shows, we aim to educate and entertain you. If you're, if you're an indie artist who's trying to figure out how to do this, this is the place you need to be. If you're an indie artist who's looking to promote and doesn't have any avenues and, and is tired of the grind, this is the place to be. Because remember, it's always time to go and be now. I love that. That's, I that's do my too. favorite line. His catchphrase is the best. Hey, Joe, we yeah. love you. I know you're watching today. All right. So let's dive on in. For those of you who did not see our previous episode, this is Virginia Cruz. Did I say that right? Cruz? Oh, girl, you killed it. Okay. All right. Perfect. She is... Uh, hold on, let me let me read the bio directly here. Virginia Cruz enlisted in the Army Reserve in 1997, where she trained in interrogation and linguistics. As an Arabic speaker, she served a panoply of tactical units in Ramadi. Is that correct? You got it. All right, Iraq. From 2003 to 2004, and subsequently served as a defense contractor and Department of Defense civilian overseas. Wow. Virginia was selected as one of the two direct commission officers for the Mid-Atlantic region in 2008 and served as, oh, I'm going to screw this one up. It's an acronym. H-U-M-I-N-T. Oh, meant just how it sounds. Okay. Human officer supporting Naval Special Warfare and the Naval War College. Virginia transitioned to the mental health field in 2013 as a licensed professional counselor specializing in military issues and combat-related trauma. Virginia is an Army Reserve officer, a combat veteran, a published researcher, and the author of the, excuse me, The Soldier's Guide to PTSD, How to No Shit Reclaim Your Life. You are amazing, Virginia. Thank you, girlfriend. I am just, I am tickled to death to be back. Thank you for the invite. I just, I love your show. I love your writers. I love your sponsor. I just think what you guys do is really special here. And it's a real honor to come back. I had so much fun on the last show. Yeah. And we went through so much yeah, good information that we, we kind of had to overflow into this one because there was just too much to talk about. Absolutely. <laughs> it was necessary. And it's, it's apropos for a lot of, you know, our, our, recent issues. Oh, I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah this really, is definitely a time to really dive into it. 
I enjoyed the feedback uh, so much that I got from the show. And I want to really thank your listeners for reaching out um, and for and for getting the soldier's guide to PTSD. And if you're re- if your listeners and your your folks watching would like a, um, a free excerpt, they can go to the soldiersguide.com and and pick up a free copy. Um, and I, I just really enjoy connecting and really wonderful questions um, that came after, after that show. And, uh, so I wanted to focus, uh, this week, do a a little bit more of a deep dive. Um, we talked a lot last time about PTSD specifically as a diagnosis. And, uh, this week I wanted to broaden it out a little bit and really talk about, okay, let's say we figure out that we have a, you know, PTSD or some other mental health disorder. What do we do about it? You know, how, you know, how do we get, you know, for most of us, you know, unless we're independently wealthy, you know, we still have to go to work. We, you know, still have to take care of our kids. We, you know, there's so much that we still have to do. So how can we get the help that we need to know shit, reclaim our lives, but keep our family intact mm-hmm. and, uh, and keep our job? You know, how do we talk to those shit bags and human resources? I, mean, <laughs> I love that you said it like that. <laughs> you know, and there's always that one person who's like, I love my job. We're a family. Fuck you. Okay. I'm so glad for you that you have the one job where, you know, your job is like a family, but the rest of us live in shitsville with like people who are really catty and unkind and crappy bosses who are dying to see us fail. And so Tonight, I wanted to talk about two things, kind of both sides. How do we talk to the people who deserve to hear our stories? Because there are some people in our lives who have no shit earned the right to hear our stories. And then there are people who haven't. But we have to talk about it anyway. And I, I kind of want to give a little background on how I developed this. Because I, I, you know, I'm a science guy. I love science. I love research. And we have so much amazing research on PTSD and on psychology and how to talk to people that we would be crazy if we didn't lean into that because there's no sense in reinventing the wheel that it just doesn't make any sense, especially when it comes to getting our lives back. Mm -hmm. And so I actually, I'm going to teach you guys something called the elevator speech. And I developed this actually when I was a clinical intern, um, back when I was just first getting licensed. Um, I was a clinical intern at, at a prison. And we had to talk about, you know, how, how do we reclaim our lives after we get out of prison? And a lot of my, my clients would say, well, um, you know, that's illegal to ask and we're just, I'm just not going to talk about, you know, that 10-year gap on my resume. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah, that might not work. Mm-hmm. So let's 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 really think about how do we do this? How do we get the support that we need? Because when we leave prison, when we leave jail, when we leave rehab, when we leave a you know a psychiatric institution, when uh, when we have to take a two week leave of absence, we have to go back to work, and we can protect. We can. I mean, we can cling to the you know. Well, it's HIPAA. And no one, you know, it's illegal for people to ask me. But at the end of the day, you can be brilliant. You can be, you can be like Katie and Jane here, okay? 
But when you're talking all your brilliance, no one's going to hear anything you're saying because we're all thinking, are we really not going to talk about Virginia having a breakdown in the bathroom? Mm. Are we really not going to talk about Virginia losing her shit in the Walmart and getting arrested? Like, are we just going to ignore that? And, you know, those are two examples that never happened to me. But, <laughs> but you know what? We, we can't ignore the facts. We have to talk about it. And I want to and I want to take time to talk about why and how we can actually use this to our advantage, because at the end of the day, there's nothing I love more and there's nothing that we as, as a society love more than a comeback kid. And so if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to start about talking about what happens to our relationships when we, when we have a mental health diagnosis. Yeah. And, um, you know, really horrible things happen when in our personal relationships when we have PTSD or when we have clinical depression or when we lose a loved one to COVID, or when we're going through a divorce, or when we're going through life, you know, things happen. And, and the number one thing that gets affected, friends, it's our personal relationships. And especially when it comes to mental illness. So, you know, depression, anxiety, an eating disorder, OCD, PTSD, this, this happens a lot. So we, we need to start acting like it. Um, you know, these we have these persistent negative beliefs, you know, with all of those things about ourselves, about other people in the world. And what that does, it takes a complete shotgun blast to the head of our relationships. And, you know, when we know something's wrong, right, you know, and we may not know like, oh, shit, I have PTSD. I had this wonderful book and it really helped. No, we know something's off. We know something is off. We may not know what it is, but we know something's off. We know something's different, not in a cute way or an attractive way. We just know something's off. And so we try to hide it because we don't want to worry the people who love us the most. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, that's not a thing. So the people who love us the most, they know something's off too because they're not stupid and they live with you and they love you and they care about us, they care about us. And so we know that they know something's off and, and they know that we know that they know something's off. And so this really weird kind of shame spiral will happen. And what, and what really happens is our, our uh, PTSD or our depression or our anxiety or whatever it is that we're really dealing with, it becomes this metaphorical elephant in the room. So, you know, it becomes this, this thing that we all know is there, you know, this, you know, that we're really struggling, but that we choose not to talk about because we're avoiding it. Because if we avoid it, then everything is going to be okay. Yeah, and we, you know, exist. girl, you're, <laughs> and let's, yeah, denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, it starts, it can start out with really good intentions, Mm -hmm. You know, we're not trying to avoid our family members. We are just trying to, like, no shit, not worry them, okay? And our family members, they might not know what's going on, or they might be genuinely and probably are genuinely worried, you know, what if I, 
What if I disrupt the silence? What happens if I stop talking about this? You know, if I start talking about, what if I ask a question? Is that going to make her suicidal? Is that going to, you know, what if I name this elephant in the room? What's, what is going to happen? And we don't bring it up because we know that whatever is going on is stressing them out. We know they're scared and we know that they don't know what to say because if we over, if we knew what to do, we would have already done it. And so, especially when it comes to PTSD, we, uh, you know, we really fall into that category of avoidance. Mm-hmm. And we talked about that uh, during the last show. That's that Criterion C, Criterion Charlie avoidance. And it rears its ugly head because it's a lot easier to avoid it than to, to face it head on. And I get it. But then here, here's kind of the science behind it. There are a lot of unintended second order effects. So we might jump into a shame spiral. Um start isolating ourselves from the people who love us the most, <clears throat> pardon me, and really can support us the most. Mm-hmm. And that social support is really important. Maybe when we interact with others, you know, we get, we're afraid that we're going to get angry or frustrated or lose our shit, you know, have a, have a meltdown in the Walmart. And we might even start drawing conclusions that aren't true. Like, you know what, maybe my family is better off without me. Maybe we start, you know, thinking about suicide. You know, maybe my family would be better off without me. Maybe all this stress is really getting to them and it would be better if I were out of the situation. And that's coming from a real place of love. I want you to hear that. You know, when when this happens and we're avoiding it and we start thinking about suicidality, we're, we're not like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna kill myself because, you know, fuck the world and fuck my family. That's not a thing. It is coming from a really genuine place of, wow, I am really fucking my family up. Mm-hmm. I'm really stressed. I am really stressed. And they and- a burden on their family and, and helping would be even more of a burden and become more stress. And yeah, I, I get that. Girl, you're singing my song. You're exactly right. And, and Jane, I see you nodding your head too. And even if... Even if you've never been in a suicidal place, it's really easy to imagine why someone would feel that way. Um, and you know, I like I like I told you, I developed I developed this method while working in prison. And you know, coming out of prison has a stigma, but guess what? So does mental illness. So does de- even dealing with depression or mm-hmm. um, even postpartum depression. Things that that a lot of people are experiencing. We don't talk about it. And when we don't talk about it, we have to be very honest about this. And this one's going to hurt, team. Um, So here's your trigger warning, because this one, we got to talk about it, though. Because if we can't talk about it here, where can we? So we have to remember that our brain has two jobs. Number one is to keep us alive. So last week, when we were talking about all the symptoms, we were talking about how logical PTSD is and how... It is our brain's way of keeping us alive. The second thing our brain does is it makes meaning, mm-hmm. whether we have all the information or not. I say again, whether we have all the information or not. So this is what I need you to hear, and it's going to sting a little bit, but in the absence of an explanation from us, our loved ones are going to reach conclusions all on their own. They're going to reach conclusions, and it's probably going to be dead wrong, 
Oh yeah. And it's probably, girl, it's going to become a, another bigger, uglier, smellier, more awkward elephant in the room that we all choose not to discuss. And, you know, simple things, for example, um, you know, maybe we, you know, we've, we're, we're going, we've decided, you know what, my drinking is too much. I knew I really need to get sober. So we stop going to the bar and then our friends don't see us anymore. And then they think, well, maybe Virginia's mad at me for something. Or maybe we're not having sex with our spouse because I, you know, I'm going through depression and that is a libido killer. Mm -hmm. And then we're not talking about it to our spouse and they make the assumption that you're cheating. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. because of the weight I put on. Yep. It's because they're mad at me. It's because they don't find me attractive anymore. So in absence of an explanation, our brain is going to come up with something. Um, maybe we can't go to our kid's school play because we don't want to have a panic attack. We're dealing with some real anxiety. And our child might think that it's because they didn't get a big enough part in the school play. Or it's because I'm a bad boy. And mom is just really disappointed in me. And so we have to talk about this. We have to talk about this. We have to talk about it to our family members. We have to talk about it to sometimes our friends, you know, to, to get that buy-in. We have to talk about it to our, to our workplace. And I want to be really clear. I realize that a lot of us listening to this have probably, you know, we've, we've been through the divorce already. Our kid has already said, I don't want to talk to you ever again. Um, you know, there's a lot of bad shit that goes down when, when we, when we don't talk about our mental health issues and we can't address it in a real and authentic way. And so I want to be, I want to be really clear. So this, when I developed this in, in prison, <laughs> you know what I mean? Working in prison, um, it, we, when I started using it with my clients, what we found is that it really started working. And so I created my, my book, The Soldier's Guide to PTSD, is actually just a bunch of class notes. Um, after, you know, after I, I got better and I got licensed, I, I started working in an inpatient hospital teaching active duty service members about PTSD and about, you know, their alcohol or addiction, um, about their depression, their anxiety, their eating disorder, their OCD, you name it. And I, I really took on a teaching role. And so I've literally taught this method to thousands of service members. That is what I would want you to know. Um, and it works. What we know is that it works. And so I want to, I want to go ahead and kind of lay it out for you if that would be okay. I want to give you the, uh, oh, thank you so much. I want to give you the science behind it, but I want to give you just a no shit script because here's the thing. Don't re Why would we reinvent the wheel? There's absolutely no need for it. Get getting your life back from PTSD or depression or anxiety or, you know, it it's hard enough. It's hard enough. There is no reason for you to reinvent the wheel. So let's dive in. We're going to talk about something called the elevator speech. So the elevator speech, this is from, um, I, I borrowed this from the business world. This is the idea that it's, you know, you're in an elevator and you've got 30 seconds with the CEO and you're locked in this confined space and you got 30 seconds to pitch your brilliant idea. 
you know, the time it takes to get from the bottom to the top of the, the penthouse in the elevator. We use it's, that a lot in the book sales too. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. We do that it's a lot. Elevator speech. Yeah. It's usually the one se or one sentence pitch that, that tells, you know, basically who your protagonist is, what they want and what's the worst case scenario if they don't get it. I love that, Katie. See, this is why I love the, your community. You know, and this is, you know, as I was reviewing this, getting ready, I realized that your fiction writers, like your folks who are, you know, readers and writers and filmmakers and creatives, you're going to be able to see all the patterns in this so much better than I did. If I were, if I were more of a creative, I probably would have come up with this a lot sooner. Um, but this is a 30 second pitch, if you will. Um, to our family members, to the people who love who love us and who we love and who we want to have a relationship with. Okay. So the first thing is, so like it says here, we've got seven distinct parts and I'm going to advise you, follow the script, follow the script because it works. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to ask permission. So before we roll out our elevator speech to anyone, it is really important that we let our loved ones know that we want to talk to them about something important and we're going to need 30 seconds of uninterrupted time to do it. 30 seconds. And we're going to ask them, you know, please no interjections, no interruptions, no questions. Just listen to me with an open mind. Just 30 seconds, 30 seconds. Now, I want to put this out there. It's really important that we recognize that not everyone we love is going to be on board for that. Uh, those of us in 12-step programs who've ever had to make amends, not everyone's on board for your amends. Not everybody wants to see you get better. Not everybody is ready to listen to you. That's a very valid point. And it's, you know what? And it's okay. It is okay. It hurts. But it is really important that we re remember that a relationship takes two people. It is two people. And it is important that even in, in this stage that we are choosing to honor other people's boundaries. We are choosing to honor our loved one and their boundary. Because when we honor somebody's boundary, that is the way, boundaries, it's the way that we show that we love, honor, respect, and value somebody by respecting their boundary. So that's why it's so important to ask for permission right off the bat. So it may sound like, you know what, uh, Katie, I'm so glad that we have this time together because there's something really important I want to talk to you about. Um, and if it's okay, I just want to get it all out at once. And I promise it's only going to take about 30 seconds. So would it be okay with you if I got this all out at once, just without any questions? And then here's the key. I need you to wait. I need you to wait for a verbal yes. I need you to wait for a north-south. And, and that's just incredibly important. It is so important, you know, because here's the thing. When we're sick, you know, let's be real. We don't know our judgment's impaired when our judgment's impaired. That's a really good point. That's exactly what PTSD does to us. That's exactly what anxiety, depression, OCD, it, it impairs our judgment. It impairs our judgment. So we're going to wait for a verbal yes. And let's say that your loved one is an interrupter. <laughs> we have it. They happen. Yep. They happen. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> because, um, and if they interrupt, it's okay. Just ask them again, you know, Hey, I know that this must feel really anxious. I promise you that I will answer all of your questions when I'm done. Would it be okay if I just have 30 seconds to get this all out at once? If they say no, let's talk about that. It happens and it's okay. Just say, you know what? I love you. I respect your boundaries. And if you change your mind, please know that I would really value talking to you. And then leave it alone. That's going to be hard. Mm. And, and I want to be really clear. In the thousands of folks that have taught this method and the, the hundreds of soldiers and service members have given me feedback, this really is the exception and not the norm. And I realize that our brain is going to tell us, no, that's the norm. That's the norm. But it's not. It's not. You know, showing someone that we love them, we honor them, value and respect their boundaries. That's really powerful. But if they're not ready, just let them know that you, when you're ready, I'm here to talk. And they will talk to you when they are ready. When can they I are ask ready. A, a quick question on that? Because I, I can see how the waiting is very hard for people. Mm. Would you recommend to your clients to put their feelings in a letter at that point if they feel like they really have to get it out and their person that they want to talk to isn't receptive at that moment? Absolutely Whether they send not. the letter or not, but just getting it out sometimes sure. is cathartic. As an exercise in catharsis, yes. But sending someone a letter or an email or a text when they've specifically oh, yeah. said no. <laughs> well, let's be for real. We don't, it's hard to know our judgment's impaired when our judgment is impaired. Mm -hmm. You know, and there's That's every a really good point. That is such a good point. You know, and that that's part of it. And we, and it's like, well, damn it. If I, if you would just listen to how much I love you. And it's like, well, calm the fuck down. They have made a really firm boundary. And by respecting that boundary, you are saying louder than words. I, uh, I love, honor, and respect you. When we have healthy, when we choose to ignore, I'm going to say this real clear. Oh, this is going to be feeling hurt, Katie. This one's going to hurt. When we choose to ignore somebody's reasonable boundary, what we are saying in no uncertain terms is, I do not respect you, and I do not want to have a relationship with you that is on your terms. Yep. I want to have a relationship with you that is on my terms. That makes you an asshole. That's, <laughs> that is a no-go. That is a no-go. And here's the thing, friends. Somebody saying that is a super reasonable boundary. If somebody says, you know what? I love you, but I'm not in a place where I can hear this right now. And you're like, no, but I wrote you a letter. And you, no, no, no. Is it going to hurt your feelings? Yeah. Is it the outcome you wanted? No. But it's really important. If you're going to mend any relationship, it has to start by choosing, choosing to love, honor, respect, and value their boundaries. That is the only way that we can have a relationship. So that's why this is number one. Please don't go there if they say no. 
Does that answer your question, Katie? Yep. I, don't, I don't want you yep. to feel that. No, that was perfect. And and we got Regine was saying he was typing that makes you an asshole right at the same time. So that, that is resonating. Mm -hmm. That makes you an asshole. Second thing is we need to introduce our elephant. So this is, you know, whenever there's an elephant in the room, introduce it. Introduce it. Introduce it because everyone knows that it's there. Here's the thing, when it comes to having this conversation, we're gonna have a lot of uncomfortable feelings. If we're being for real and honest, for a lot of us listening to this right now, this is super cringy. This is super cringy. This is not easy to talk about. We may feel nervous talking to our loved one, super emotional, really frustrated. We might be completely numb. We might be coming off like, like a robot because we're not able to connect anymore. And we, we talked last time about how, you know, with avoidance, we can really get into that space of feeling very numb where we, we're not able to feel joy or happiness. And here's the thing. However, we feel is completely okay as long as we own it. So with this, with kind of introducing the elephant in the room, we name our feelings and we let our loved one know that everything's going to be okay. And it may sound something like, you know what, uh, Jane, I'm going to be really honest with you right now. I am so nervous. And if I shout, sound really shaky, um, it's because I am. But I'm going to be okay. And this is important to me. Or it may say, you know, Katie, I realize that it sounds like I'm not feeling anything right now. And it's just really hard for me to connect. And I want you to know that I want to. I want to. Okay. What questions do you have about that, if any? What kind of a pushback do you think you'd get from that kind of being raw and open? Mm -hmm. So I, I like to use the word authentic. I think it's really the only way that we can do this wrong is if we're inauthentic. Um, we may get, you know, we may get the, you know, pushback like, you know, well, you know, fine or, or whatnot. And then we just have to restate, you know, that interruption, you know, listen, I just, and that's why we have to wait for that buy-in too. We have to wait for that buy-in on step one. Um, you know, if there's, if there is, you know, a little snide remark, we suck it up. Say, you know what? I, I understand that you're frustrated. Would it be okay if I just got this all out? All out. I will tell you that in the experience of my service members there, this is so fast and so succinct and so to the point that there's really not a lot of opportunity for, you know, um, what do you call that in a comedy room when heckling? <laughs> you know, there's not, there's not going to be a lot of room for heckling. And that's because it's so fast. It's super fast. Now, this is me playing devil's advocate. Girl, but hit me. If, if let's say the person who's, who's coming out with their feelings and trying to be honest, they're coming up against somebody who is narcissistic. Mm-hmm. That kind of, it, it's almost like a self-defeating cycle when you deal mm -hmm. with somebody who cannot actually meet you at that emotional mm -hmm. level. 
and people will deal with that. How can they, I guess, work through trying to deliver their information because they do love each other, even though one is kind of incapable of actually, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? My brain is just not working today. Like but we can't reciprocate. It's not an even relationship, that. but yeah. they want to to be open. They want to be honest. They want to do their part to, you know, highlight the elephant in the room so that they can mm -hmm. be in the healing process. But their partner is incapable, narcissistic, whatever. Mm -hmm. How can they deal with that? That is a great question. And we're actually going to cover that in the next section. Okay. So, so I'm jumping ahead. Now, <laughs> no, no. You know what? You're voicing it. Again again. You're, yeah, you're voicing it and other people are feeling it and thinking it. Like, oh, this is never going to work. You know, my dad's an asshole. This is never going to work. You know, mm -hmm. my boss is a jerk. Yep. So this is, so this elevator speech, we're going to have two different elevator speeches. One is for people that we want to have relationship with. So we remember that relationships are reciprocal and take two people. Very mm -hmm. hard to be in a reciprocal, you know, loving relationship with a narcissist. However, you're right. There are a lot of times that we have to interact with a narcissist. Maybe it's an ex, probably an ex, um, you know, maybe a boss, um, maybe, you know, maybe a judge, you know, we have to talk to it. Not that judges are narcissists, calm down. But, um, you know, maybe we're, we have to talk to, um, to HR or the law or in a court martial. So um, I, I'm going to actually put that on ice and we're going to cover it when we're talking about how do we talk to people. Because there are two types of people. Some people deserve our story and can digest it and mm -hmm. want to be in relationships. Yes. And some people don't have that capacity. And that's okay. So the sense. first part, does that answer your question, Katie? I want yeah. to make sure that. Okay. Yeah, because that, that's kind of what I was hinting towards is, is yeah. the ones that don't deserve to hear it aren't really the ones you're hoping to come out to. Yeah. I mean, let's talk. It, yeah. They aren't your tribe <laughs> in, in that case, you know, yeah. not, you know, rooting for you. They, they're actually rooting for your yeah. downfall. So they're not invested in you yeah. getting better. Exactly. Yeah, that's tough. You know, that's tough whether we're dealing with PTSD, sobriety. You know, not everyone's going to be thrilled you got sober. Oh, now I've got um, another question too. Dang it. Hit me, hit me. <laughs> so on the other side of the coin, let's say you're talking to a family member who is a very dominant personality and who wants you to get better on their terms. And it's out of love, but it's it's that personality of I know exactly what you need, and you're gonna you're gonna do this and this and this, and it's gonna make you better, even though that might not be the way <laughs> things should work for you. Well, and and that happens a lot. You know, we've got people who you know think they know right, and we're actually so in point five, we're gonna cover that okay. where we're going to ask for buy-in and manage those expectations. So this is gonna get really really succinct. Really succinct. And when we put this together and we have it in action, I think it'll be easier to see. But yeah, we're going to have people who are going to be like, all right, uh, great. I got a rehab. I got a bed for you. And I know where you're going. You're like, damn, dude, calm down. Yep. <laughs> and um, we have to remember it's coming from a place of love. 
most some maybe well yeah Cringy. Well, we'll see everyone is different and here's the thing there's you the only way you can go wrong with this is if we're inauthentic so the third thing we're going to do is we're going to own our past own our past so this is a chance for us to own our behavior and not make any excuses not make any excuses that's super important um this is an elevator speech so we're going to keep this really concise this isn't making amends this isn't talking to a therapist keep it short keep it sweet get to the point there will be time to go in depth and it's not now so i'm going to say that again if this elevator speech is taking more than 60 seconds correct yourself you are doing it wrong doing it wrong so it is going to be simple and to the point. Maybe like, you know, I know when I got back from deployment, things have been off. I've been drinking too much and spending a lot of time alone. Might sound like, you know what? Pandemic last year, this year, it's been really hard for me. I've had friends who have died and I've really struggled with feeling down and I know this has affected you. So we're short, sweet to the point. Now, I want to stomp a foot here, metaphorically. Um, it's really important that this is not the time to bring shit up that is not the elephant in the room. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, so, you know, I've had a really hard time, which is why I'm having an affair with your brother. The fuck what? Stop that. <laughs> don't do that. Do not do that. So when we own this, this is our time to no kidding say, you know, this, this is, this is the behavior and we've owned it. And if you have to drop a bomb, this is why God made licensed marriage and family counselors. <laughs> stop sleeping with your in-laws. Stop it. Don't do that. It's not going to help. So the fourth part of this is an epiphany, an epiphany. So this is an aha moment. So we learned something we didn't learn before. We met something, someone we didn't meet before. We noticed something we didn't notice before. And all of a sudden, we have shifted. We've had a real Air force of my favorite Air Force term. We've had this whole paradigm shift where all of a sudden, our fundamental belief system has changed. Our big two has shifted. So if we remember that from, from last time, you know, we believe change is possible. We want to change and we're ready to take that step. So... This, when I say, you know, we have an epiphany, this might sound super flippant, but it's, it's not a small deal. So epiphanies come in packages large and small, and, but the impact is really profound. You know, what was it that made us want to change? So this might sound like, you know, after my last suicide attempt, I realized I wanted to live. Yeah. Or, you know what? I decided I want to be the best dad I can be. That's an epiphany. That's an epiphany. Step five, we're going to ask for buy-in and we're going to manage expectations. So this is when the conversation is going to shift to the here and now. So we went from the there and then where we're, we're asking for that, that, you know, we're asking for buy-in, we're naming our elephants, we're owning our shit. Um, and we're, we're saying, you know what, we're, this and we're naming our epiphany, we're asking for buy-in and we're managing expectations. So it may sound something, you know, the journey's not going to be easy, but we're dedicated to trying. 
So this might find something like, you know what, I'm here and I really want to change. I know that this isn't going to be easy. I'll probably screw up a lot, but I believe that with your support, I can do this. Would that be a spot where they, um, because if you're managing expectations, you almost have to have a plan of your own in place. So would this be where they would say something like, I'm looking into my insurance coverage for therapy. I'm looking for a program I've signed up for whatever to, to kind of prove that they have already taken a step to manage the other person, maybe not jumping in and going, okay, now this is what you're going to do. And again, that's that interrupter. And so if we have an interrupter, we just very calmly restate, you know what? I, I promise I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me all the questions you want right after. I just really need to get this out. You know, and that's a boundary. We're restating a really reasonable boundary. Now, not, you know, reasonable people respect reasonable boundaries. But then there's a problem with that. Not everyone is reasonable. But it's it's very important that we restate that boundary. So it might sound like, you know what? Uh, mommy's decided to get the help that she needs to get better. And it might take a while to see the change in me. I know that with your with your love I can I can do anything. You know, coming back from mental illness, whether it's PTSD or mourning a death or you know, I mean shit, just about anything, coming coming out of prison, coming back from a deployment. It's not an overnight process. It's not an overnight process. And we just need to let our loved ones know that we're all in. I'm all in. So point six, we're going to love them. Now, ooh, there are some of us who are just like, girl, I don't use those words, those three little words. And I'm going to tell you, stop it. Stop it. This is your chance to break rank. We have to say it and keep it simple. Keep it simple. Most important thing I want you to know is that I love you. And I am open to answering the questions you have. Now, this is hard. Step seven is the hardest part, and I want to talk about it. I need you to shut the fuck up. Mm. Shut hard. the oh, fuck up. That is so hard. <laughs> yep. Let's talk about why it's hard in this model. Every part of us, I'm talking to you parents, grandparents, Every part of you is going to want to jump in and save. Every part of you is going to want to jump in and break the silence. This mm. is going to be so uncomfortable, so nerve-wracking. Don't go in for the hug. Don't try to comfort. Don't try to soothe. In the moment, we have to choose to be silent. And here's why. We have to give our loved ones time to speak. We absolutely need to respect that. When we choose to be silent, it gives our loved one the opportunity to feel whatever it is they feel without us interjecting and without us judging. We're uncomfortable. Trust me, they're uncomfortable too. When we choose to be silent, it honors their experience. It honors their experience. And it invites them to share their thoughts, their feelings, and their emotions. Hey, this is our time to be in receive mode. It's going to be vulnerable. It's going to be frightening. 
And this is an invitation to reconnect and for them to be with us in a radically authentic way, the same way we were with them. So let me ask the dumb person question here. Hit me. How long do you remain silent after this? Un until they're ready to talk. Until they are ready to speak. Mm. They have to process too. Absolutely. Uh, that, that awkward silences. I can see where that is just one of the hardest things to deal with because mm -hmm. if you're already in a mental state where you're thinking worst case scenario and you're on the negative self-talk, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. where you're probably going into overdrive at that point, mm -hmm. waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah. And let's talk about kind of the big ugly. What if our loved one isn't ready to speak with us at the moment and says, mm -hmm. you know what? I need a minute. They might be angry. They might be emotional. They might be completely unfazed. They might not even know what to say. Right. Right. <laughs> Just dumbfounded. <laughs> exactly. But what we do when we choose to be quiet is we open a door that is not easily shut. If our loved one isn't ready to talk with us, just like at the beginning, we'll let them know that, you know, listen, when you change your mind, if you change your mind, I'm available. I care about you and I respect your boundaries. Would it be okay to say something like, I don't need you to respond right now? No. All the time you need. Shut the fuck up. Uh -huh. Okay. Shut like, let the them, fuck up. Let them you process. Let them say what they need to say if they need mm -hmm. to say something or not say anything at all. It's, it, it's really a tough thing to do. <laughs> yeah. No, I, like I said, the, the mind goes into overdrive at that point when you don't have, you know, things that you're saying, you're relying on the other person and you're in an awkward silence. Oh, yeah. oh, this is hard. Yeah. You know what? That's Fuck scary. Just thinking know. about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even in this situation. I'm breaking out in hives right now going, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> Friends, let's talk about this though. Let's really get real about this. Anything worth having is hard. Anything mm. worth having is fucking hard. Absolutely. And these relationships, they are vital to your recovery. So we talk a lot about relapse prevention when it comes to drugs or alcohol, but we have to get real. We can relapse when it comes to depression or anxiety or PTSD. We can go back to a stage where we are just not feeling our best. We need social support. We need to reconnect with people. Yeah. This, is, this is a way to unfuck what our mental illness has fucked. And we could say, for example, you know, what if they say, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I, I just need a minute, you know, just say, you know, I completely understand. Just reaffirm, you know, I respect your boundaries. If you change your mind, please know I value talking to you. And when they are ready, they will come. Right. So before we get, Go ahead, Katie. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. You actually hit on the, the thing that I was thinking of. So, yeah. I love reading your mind like that, girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's have some notes about this before we kind of look at what this looks like. So every elevator speech is as different as our experiences. Okay. Very different. But it's super important that we follow the outline. So I developed this on the backs of works by Robert Rosenthal, Viktor Frankl. These are two greats in psychology. <laughs> and this strategy has literally helped 
hundreds of service members connect and reconnect with their loved ones and give given them a path to recovery. Let's talk about using notes. There are some of us who are therapists and we talk to people for a living. We're really good at all this talky shit. And there's some of us that aren't. Maybe we're writers and we're just really good at reading shit and that's okay. Use notes to help. Talking to our loved ones about PTSD, about depression, anxiety, that's nerve wracking, okay? Use written notes if that helps to steady you. Just be sure that you let them know. So right up in that, you know, elephants in the room, um, just say, you know what? <laughs> I just want to tell you I'm really nervous right now. And so to respect your time and to honor you, I just took some notes so that I could follow this. I like Regine says cue cards here. You know what? Sometimes we need those. But it's not because we need something to read. It's to steady us. Mm -hmm. Just if there's an elephant in the room, introduce it. Introduce it. And there's a part of you probably, and I hear this a lot, you're saying, you know what, Virginia, that's kind of manipulative. Isn't this sort of manipulative? And they're like, oh, girl, well, girl's an interrogator. I should have seen this one coming. And I'm going to say, listen, <laughs> you, you can write me a strongly worded email later. But here's the thing. There is no re there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. We have good science. We have good research. And the only way that this is manipulative is if our words are inauthentic. If our words are inauthentic, then you're an asshole. Well, and I don't see how it could be manipulative. You're asking for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. 30 seconds, and, girl. And you're just trying to get out what you're trying to get out. And you finish off with silence, mm -hmm. which is the let the other person have their piece to, to say. So it's really, it's not manipulative in the sense that you're trying to get them to do anything. You're just trying to get that 30 seconds of listen. Amen, sister. Let's talk about place and space. So it's really important that we have a time, appropriate time and place to speak to our loved ones. We don't always get that choice. Sometimes we're incarcerated. Sometimes we're in the hospital. Our options are limited. But if we have freedom, let's use that. Let's get a quiet place without interruptions, if possible. This is an individual conversation. Let's get real about that. Katie, you have three kids, right? Mm-hmm. Each one of them has their own little personality. <laughs> oh, yeah. And what we know is that everyone is going, everyone is affected very differently by your elevator speech. Your mental illness, your their experience is not going to affect two people the same way. Right. You might have one child who's incredibly sensitive. You might have one child who's like, um, okay, does this, can I go play? <laughs> Happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Happens a lot. So let's be aware of this. Let's respect our individual family members. This isn't talking to mom and dad. This is talking to mom. This is talking to dad. Different people, mm -hmm. different reactions. Last thing, is, and keep it age appropriate. Let's talk about that when we talk to children. It's going to be a different conversation. I, I like that you're telling us this isn't just for speaking to the adults that you're affecting. Because you're right. The kids are they're also affected by what happens. And they are, are affected more than we give them credit for. Especially yeah, if they're smart smarter kids. than we, <laughs> we think. Oh, <laughs> yeah. 
Oh yeah, they they pick up on a hell of a lot more than I think, and parents know their kids, and they still pick up on more than parents give them credit for. Maybe you're lucky enough to have dumb kids, but I don't shit, girl. This is why I don't raise humans. Like <laughs> they are terrifying. Um, I don't I don't even counsel like teens or, or adolescents or children because they, I they are way smarter than me. Um. Yeah, but we we have to talk to them because the consequence of, of not doing it's too great. Two last things. You're probably going to cry. You're probably going to cry. And I'm not talking like a really nice white handkerchief cry. Oh, oh. oh the big ugly about- red nose, tears streaming down the face. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter if you're reading off a cue card. It doesn't matter if this is to your neighbor. You're probably going to be in a really emotional place. Be ready for that shit. Have a handkerchief. Have some tissues. Don't get caught off and snot your your sleeve. That's just not going to end well, and it's gross. And for all of the millennials out there, a handkerchief is a washable Kleenex that you keep <laughs> for that that reason because nobody uses handkerchiefs anymore. <laughs> yeah, nobody really does. <laughs> smart. My yeah. father-in-law does. <laughs> yeah, have something on hand. Yeah, I tell you, whenever I have the chance to work with millennials, I'm so fucking amazed. And I think back to myself, like if I had that self-awareness at that age, I would be queen of fucking Texas, girl. I'm just <laughs> so impressed. So impressed. Um, last thing, practice it. Um, I'm really going to encourage us to role play this with someone before you go live. Uh, try it with a therapist. If you, if you have availability, try a trusted friend, do it in the mirror, do it in the mirror, write it out, um, do whatever it's going to take. Get, get pepped up. Get pepped mm-hmm. up about this. Okay, so before I give you some examples, um, are, what questions do you have about this? Or do you just want to roll with it and see how we do? I think I've hit all the questions I had. What do you think, yeah. Jim? Um, I, I'm, you know, on board with this because it's it's very, very uh, logical to me. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it's laid out, you know, very well. Easy to, to follow steps. What about your it gives it gives me an idea because honestly I don't have any <laughs> that I know of <laughs> any mental issues like depression or anxiety or anything like that. I'm pretty laid back, so it gives me an idea of somebody coming to me how I need to react as well. So oh, it's, I like that it's good. It's a good. It's a yeah. <laughs> I'm oh. <laughs> maybe I write it out. Who knows. <laughs> I, I lost my brother a couple years ago. In fact, August, um, yep. due to uh, suicide, and I remember how it affected the family, and, and each person was affected differently. There's a lot of survivor's guilt because everyone wanted to help him, and it was very hard to tell when he needed help and when he didn't need help because outwardly he was the most just joyful and smiley and happy and just. He had all kinds of just energy and he was one of those people that you wanted to be around. He was such a great personality. So it was very rough on, on all of us. And, and especially my two sisters who are closer to him, who actually lived in the same city with him. 
there was a lot of that survivor's guilt, you know, wondering if they could have done more, what could they have done to help? Did they do too much? Did they push too hard? You know? Yeah. I'm so sorry for your loss. And you've shared that with me before. And I can't, I can't even imagine what, what it's like to go through that anniversary every year and have that come up and have that come up. And, um, please let me know how I can support you. Cause I want to. Thank you. I, you know, I, I, I haven't I lost a sibling. Her, so. <laughs> Say again. I just want to hug her. So <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't lost a, you know, a sibling to suicide, you know, and I love my siblings. I have brothers and I love them so fucking much. I, that I, I don't even know what I'd do. And I'm not going to, you know, sit here and be like, oh, well, I'm so smart and I wrote a book. Hmm, that's not a thing. I have no idea. I have no idea what that would even be like. And I just, I want to be here to support you in any way. I mean that. Thank you. And I, I might fuck that. up. I might fuck up and say the totally wrong thing, but I, I want you to know that I want to be here. That, that means a lot. I appreciate that. I value you and I value this show and I value your audience. And, we do have uh, a good audience. We do. do. They are here every week supporting us. And yeah. we absolutely love them for it. Our, our, our posse is wonderful. The tribe. And we've said it tribe. so many yep. times. Finding your tribe is just, it's mm -hmm. essential. It's yes. essential to be able to if get anything. through the things that you need to get through. Mm -hmm. Right. What a cool tool for your tribe to have to be a, you know, this is a cool tool to be able to open up to each other and to talk in a way that is just, will even deepen those relationships more. I mean, this can be used in, in so many aspects. I, I think it's really useful, but yeah. let, let me jump into the kind of this first example. Okay. And so this is actually from the book. And if any of your listeners, um, any of the folks watching have kind of a scenario that they would like to hear role played. I'm super open to that, um, and I would invite you to um, to put it in the chat. And Katie and Jane, if you'd let me know, that'd be very helpful because I'm my eyesight isn't fantastic, but I'm really trying. Oh yeah, um, we'll let you know. We'll let you I, know. I'm I'm super open to it. So if you're hearing something, listeners, you know that you would like. What about this situation? That's what we're here for. So let's mm -hmm. do it. Okay, so first example. Okay, we're gonna start with asking permission. So this is talking to a spouse, you know. Honey, I am so glad that we have time alone tonight because there's something I really wanna talk to you about. I promise it's not bad, um, but it is something that I'm going to need to get out all at once if that's okay. So if it's all right with you, I just want 30 seconds, get this out, all at once without any interruptions. Would that be okay? Listen to what I'm doing. I'm stopping. I'm waiting for an answer. Don't proceed without an answer. Super important. Okay. Introducing elephants, right? I took some time to write some things down on paper because I don't want to forget anything and it really helps me to feel less nervous because I'm really shaky right now. And we're going to own our past. You know, I've had a couple tough years and I know it's affected us both. 
I had a bad deployment. I pushed you away and I have been drinking a lot. We're moving on to the epiphany. You know, recently things got really dark for me and I have decided I need to get some help for my drinking. So then we're going to ask for that buy-in. I have some ideas for getting help. I know it's not going to be easy, but I believe that with your support, I can really start getting sober. Love. Okay. I realize that I've put you through a lot. And the most important thing I want you to know is that I love you, I love us, and I plan to do whatever it takes to make this work. This is the important part right there. Shut the fuck up. And I say that with love. I say that with so much love. If you don't like F-bombs, don't get my book because you'll hate it. But it's so important. Give your loved one that time to react. So important. So you see how we, we took, now that was over like that. Over like that. So I'm going to go through another one, something a little more age appropriate because talking with kids is important. And, but I'm not going to stop and give you sort of those, you know, this is what step we're on. I want you to, to look at that list and and uh, go through it. Okay. Daughter, I have something I really want to talk to you about if that's okay. Now, listen, you're not in any trouble, but I want to talk to you a little about what I've been going through. Would that be okay? Wait for an answer. You know what? I realize that I'm crying a little bit, but I am okay. Sometimes I feel so much love for you and mom that it fills my heart. It comes out my eyeballs. And I want to promise you that I am okay. Now, I know we haven't been spending a lot of time together like we used to. And that is my fault. I was too embarrassed to tell you this. But sometimes I get really scared in crowds. Sometimes I get really unexpectedly too. And it really scares me. Now, even though I feel scared sometimes... I have decided that I want to be the best dad I can be. So I'm going to work to face my fears. So this means that I'm going to go see a special doctor who can help me. They're going to give me a lot of homework. And I might seem super grumpy, but that doesn't mean I'm grumpy with you. Your encouragement when you see me being grumpy is really going to help. I can only imagine that it feels scary to see me acting angry. And I imagine sometimes you feel really lonely too. The most important thing I want you to know is that I love you. You can talk to me about any feelings you have. I promise you I'm going to do the best I can to answer all your questions. It sounds so easy when you when you have it all laid out. Yeah. I mean, there's the motion behind it, obviously. And, and saying it's going to be the hardest thing. It mm -hmm. is. And there's going to be snot. There's going to be tears. <laughs> and that's okay. It's okay. There, I promise you there's no way to fuck this up. 
I promise you, unless you are like a sociopath or a psychopath and you are just playing the feelings, there's really no way to fuck this up. Keep it short. Keep it sweet. Keep it to the point. Get through your seven steps and give your loved one the opportunity. Okay. Last one. Okay. Dad, I am so glad we have a chance to talk, even if it's just on the phone. So I know you've been worried about me and... I will not lie to you. I've been worried about me too. So I want to tell you a little bit of what I've been going through and it's going to take me about 30 seconds to get it all out. And I promise you that after that, I will answer any questions you have with that. Be okay with you. And wait, you know what? It is super hard for me right now to connect with my feelings. So it might sound to you that I'm numb or I don't feel anything. And I promise you, I do feel and that I'm okay. You know, I have had a really hard time getting back to, you know, just getting my life together since my buddy's suicide last year. And I stopped calling you weekly like I used to because I didn't want you to worry about me. And I realize now that that probably made you worry a lot more. I have been talking to my battle buddies and I've decided that I want to get help. Be looking to get professional help. And I'll be honest with you, I could use your weekly check-in again. I realized that I'm the one who stopped calling you and I'm really sorry I did that. I miss talking to you every week. I can't imagine what it was like for you to not hear from me. I'm really sorry. I want you to know that I love you. And I'm really thankful that you're my dad. Okay. These conversations are hard. Let's, let's get you real. But let me tell you what's harder. What's harder is not having support. What's harder is not having support. Getting help for PTSD, depression, anxiety, OCD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. These are not drive-through breakthroughs, friends. This is not Burger King counseling. This is not my way right away. We can't go through this alone. Well, we can. It's, but it don't. It is, it is so important to have people who support us and love us. We can use this elevator speech to talk to the person we divorced a decade ago. The child who doesn't want to talk to us anymore. You've got nothing to lose, friend, by going for it. The only, you, you got nothing to lose. But you have everything to gain. And this is so incredibly important. You know, before we move on to PTSD and work, I'm wondering if any of your listeners have any scenarios that they kind of want to hear. I'll give them a couple minutes and see if they want to post sure. anything. And if anybody is not comfortable posting them uh, live. Oh, um, yeah. oh, I'm an yeah. asshole. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> that is leaving the options out there. Um, they can always uh, send their information through to spillinginkshow at gmail.com and we can forward it to you cool. um, if you'd like to see those. But that way, just in case, and, you know, for the listeners who happen to catch it later on, that way there's a, an opportunity for them if they have a question. I love that. Thank you, Katie. Mm -hmm. So while we're waiting for those to, to come in, let's talk about PTSD and work. 
uh, or mental illness and worker or going back to work after having to have some sort of a, you know, a, a, a time off. So we've already talked about people who deserve our narratives, the people who love and support us. But friends, there are a lot of people who don't, who don't. But we still have to deal with them. We, yeah. Unless we're independently wealthy, <laughs> unless we're independently wealthy before and after we get treatment for, you know, for addiction or PTSD or depression or anything, we have to go back to work. They don't, we have to go back to work. My cousin has this great expression. He says, we don't call it going to fun. We call it going to work. And, um, and I love that because it makes, it just makes me laugh because it's true. It's true. And what I need you to understand when we're talking about going back to work, we're going to talk about the science behind it, is that we either control the narrative or the narrative controls us. Oh, that's a good point. Okay. That is a really and, good point. Yeah. Once more for the folks in the back, we control the narrative or the narrative controls us. We introduce the elephant or it's going to trample us. It is going to trample us. So getting, getting ahead of it is more important to, to keeping it from being something that squishes yeah. us. And let's talk about fair. Let's talk about fair because it's not fair. It's not fair and it's none of their business. And we go back to work and we shouldn't have to talk about it to our HR. I hear you. I hear you. And you know what? Grow the fuck up. Life is not fair. <laughs> Life is not fair. And this, this elevator speech is, um, is all about how do we, um, how do we control our narrative? How do we control our narrative? And so, all right, first we're going to start with, you know, the shoulds, you know, there should be HIPAA, there should be confidentiality, but yeah, reality. Yeah. Are we really not going to talk about Virginia being in the hospital for four weeks? Are we really just going to, you know what, let's control that. So we're going to start with kind of the science behind it. And I want to introduce... One of my favorite, and if you took psychology as an undergrad, you probably remember Robert Rosenthal. Uh, and in 1964, he conducted a wonderful experiment on an elementary school in San Francisco, or at, not on, I misspoke, wrong, you know, wrong preposition there goes a long way. But what he did in his experiment, and we call this the Rosenthal effect, is he gave all of his, all of the students in an elementary school standardized IQ tests. Very oh, no. standard IQ test. Um, but he put a new cover sheet on it. I don't know if, you know, any any folks who are in the military know, you know, that's the, that, you know, you just take an old report, slap a new cover sheet on it, and presto change And that's exactly what Robert Rosenthal did. He And he called it the Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition. That sounds fancy as fuck, right? Yeah, because it wasn't true. Absolutely not true. 100% a lie. So it was a standardized IQ test. But Rosenthal gave everyone else the impression that it was something new and fancy and Ivy League. So he told all of the school administrators and all of the teachers that this fancy fancy Harvard test had the ability to predict which kids were about to experience a dramatic growth in their IQ special kids. They're going to dramatically get smarter. Not true. Stomping my foot. Not true. So the kids took the test and then Rosenthal picked children completely at random 
and told their teachers that these results told which kids were going were on the verge of an intense intellectual bloom. I mean, fancy. He told the teachers. He told the administrators. He didn't tell the students, by the way. Didn't tell the students. Didn't tell their parents. And then Rosenthal and his team, they followed the children over the next two years. And at the end of the study, they tested all the children again with same IQ test. And then something really miraculous in air quotes happened. The children that Rosenthal had labeled as intellectual bloomers actually did show statistically significant gains on the IQ test. The fuck what? Right? Because they told the teachers who gave them better treatment. Girl, you hearing me? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. They kicked, they picked the kids at random. And what they found, because they were they were watching, and what they really noticed is that the teachers' moment-to-moment -moment interaction with the kids who were expected to bloom versus the just the normal kids that those kids got more, more individual attention, more time to answer questions, more affirmation, more approval. And I love the quote that Rosenthal has in his study. He said, it's very likely these thousands of different ways of treating people in small ways every day that added to it. So it wasn't the children's aptitude that gave them the statistically significant improvement. It was the story. It was the narrative. It was the story that the teachers believed about them, believed about them. And since we're all writers here and for your fiction writers, I've got this really cool chart that I, that I gave to Katie for you to, to take a look at. You're probably going to recognize this because this is totally stolen from my undergraduate literature classes. So we think about stories that are going to inspire us. Now, I'm not a fiction writer and I'm not super creative. So I'm I'm just being totally an intel officer here. So I put it in a graph because if it's on a graph, that makes it real. And so we'll call our x-axis, um, you know, time and, you know, x is time and uh, y is our level of happiness or success. So <laughs> this is as fancy as I get when it comes to charts. So if we follow these charts on the graph, we're going to find the basic structure of an inspirational story. And so number one, and I'm going to start it off the way that every good war story starts that I've ever heard. So no shit, there I was doing my own thing and I failed. Two, I did what I could do to get better. And it really looked like it was working. Three, but I failed again. And I tried and I tried, but things just got worse and worse. Four, finally I hit rock bottom. Everything was shit. But at rock bottom, something miraculous happened. I had an epiphany. I learned something I didn't know before. I met someone I didn't meet before. I did something I've never done before. And I learned and I improved. Number five, because life is life. There's lots of ups and downs. But in general, my life kept going up and I felt happily ever after. Now I'm going to have to ask you two writers. I think in the American lexicon, this is called like a Horatio Alger story, isn't it? This kind of rag to riches yeah, yeah, that does yeah. look like the, the rags to riches graph because it usually yeah. starts with some kind of a, a success that they have immediately taken away from them and they have to dig deep in order to get that success success back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So novelists, like, like both of you know this, every Chicken Soup for the Soul book, 
lives for this. I mean, we learn and we feel inspired. This is part of kind of our American character. This part of our psychology is we love it when people have a, have a comeback, whether it's uh, Oprah or Rocky Balboa. Everyone loves a comeback. Everyone loves a movie where there's a comeback. And if you think of every any story that inspires you, it probably follows a similar pattern. So here's the thing. We would be, as, as folks who are going to talk to people who don't necessarily want to talk to us, and we'll go back into our narcissists, like I promised I would circle back on, we would be foolish not to tap into this element of the human psyche. Because, hon, if you're not cheating, you're just not trying. Just not trying. So we are going to go into the psychology of it. So, and in fact, there's an entire school of therapy that is based on this. It's called logotherapy. It was developed by a, uh, a neurologist, a psychiatrist, and an Auschwitz survivor named Viktor Frankl. Incredible, incredible story. And um, very much recommend you reading his work. So Frankl knew that personal experiences are transformed into personal stories. We give them meaning and it helps to shape our identity. So he understood that there's a lot of shit in our lives that we don't get to choose. I'm pretty sure that's his quote. Joking. So we don't choose our family. We don't choose where we grow up. We don't choose to be traumatized. Children have very, very little autonomy. Um, as adults, we don't get a choice. Frankel didn't choose to get imprisoned in a concentration camp. It's not a thing. But Frankel knew, and this is a quote that just I love from him, that man's capable of resisting and braving even the worst conditions. And by doing that, we can detach ourselves and look at things from a more objective third-person point of view. It was later developed into something called narrative therapy. And um, the folks who, who developed that, Mike White and David Epstein, um, they were really looking at how does the narrative, what is it that we tell ourselves about ourselves that matters? And from that, we can kind of pull this lesson. If we survive it, we get to define it. And I want to say that again. When we survive it, we get to define it. We get to define our trauma. We get to define our meaning. And we get to define how it shapes us. Nobody else I say again, nobody else has the right to define your experience. This shit is not a team sport. When we tell our story, it's an action toward change because we're externalizing it. So it's really important that we have this scientific background and we have the, the psychology behind it because we're back at our original question. How do we talk to our bosses and our colleagues about our our issue, our mental illness, our PTSD, our sobriety in a way that one, controls the narrative and number two, gets buy-in and possible social support, even if it's only superficial because some people are awful, to get the help that we need. So what we're going to do is we're going to create an elevator speech that's similar but not same because this this is, you know, unlike talking with our loved ones, this elevator speech is going to really take advantage of this love of narrative. It's important that we we're gaming the game a little bit. And that's not to be manipulative. It's to be smart. It's to be smart. 
So here, oh, thank you for bringing that up, Katie. I appreciate it. This elevator speech has six parts, not not seven. So I, I got you one. So this is, and, and the reason for this is this acknowledges the formality behind it. There, there may be a work setting, a court martial, talking to a judge, talking to a chain of command, um, talking to a narcissist. So the first one, thank them for the opportunity to talk. So we need to set the stage. Now, when talking with HR or chain of command or narcissist, we don't always have the luxury of asking for uninterrupted time to talk. So we're just going to start by thanking them for the time to speak with us, even if we didn't get a choice because that's we were subpoenaed. Um, so it's possible. It'd be great if we're proactively able to ask for that. It shows courage. It shows how serious we are about our own treatment, and it helps to control the narrative. We're also going to introduce our elephant. So we remember that we are controlling the narrative. When there's an elephant in the room, we have to introduce it. Again, feeling nervous, emotional, numb, totally okay. Using a note card, totally okay, just introduce it. So it might sign, you know what, Your Honor, in order to respect your time, I took some notes to help me stay on point. Or it's nerve-wracking to talk to you about my PTSD because of the stigma. So I'm really thankful for your patience. So it's going to have a little more sugar in it because we, we need to own the situation. So number three, own our past. Own our past. So still an opportunity for us to own our own behavior and not make any excuses. Focus on work terms, whatever that you're dealing with. Be concise. And again, again, no new revelations. We do not have to share the details of our trauma with people who don't deserve that. I want to be very clear. Just the facts. Just the facts. And if they ask, they're assholes. And, and we will get to that. So if we work, <laughs> this is going to sound shitty. Here we go. If, um, if, you, if the reason why we're not we're going through this is because of military experience and we work in a civilian setting. Just go there. Just go there. I know that that's super uncomfortable and feels schmarmy, but here's the deal. Most people out in the civilian world believe that military service is honorable. There are a lot of people who don't, or at least, you know, but maybe they'll act like they do. It's a really good time to pull out your military card. So it might, it might sound like, you know, something like, uh, when I first got back from deployment, I thought I was okay, but I started having drinking problems and I was drinking to cope. It didn't end well and I started acting out and I got a DUI. Now notice this, in a few short phases, you go through phases one through four of the inspirational narrative model. Okay, so then at point four, we hit rock bottom, but we have an epiphany. Remember, you're not cheating, you're not trying. We're linking back to the narrative model. Saraha moment, okay? And um, what was it that brought us to this point? Can sound something like, you know, when the military police picked me up, I realized my life spiraled out of control and I needed to get help. Oh, did we lose Jane? Poor thing. Uh oh. Uh oh. I heard Her internet is spotty out there sometimes. So, oh, she'll be Maine. back. Maine. Okay. And then. 
five. And this is where this is where the rubber meets the road. We're going to ask her buy-in. We're going to manage expectations. This is why we're here. We need support from our bosses and our colleagues so we can get the help that we need. It's why we're here. It's also a time to manage expectations. We know that the journey, any healing journey is not easy and we're dedicated to trying. So this may sound something like, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to go to rehab. I know it's not going to be easy. You know, I'm going to have to, when I come back, I'm going to have to go to counseling weekly. I'm going to have to take time off from work. And I believe that your continued support is really going to help me. Now that's, you know, we use the word continued there. Even if they never gave a rat's ass about you, we're smart to use some sugar. Let's mm -hmm. be smart. Let's be smart. It's also controlling the narrative too. You're putting the idea that they're already helping you and they're going to continue that. It's a, oh yeah. It, yeah. Oh yeah. That's subliminal um, work there. Girl, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. A little sugar goes a long way. It's super important. We have all these psychological tools. We have to use them. We have to use them. Um, thank them and show dedication. It's a little different than love you and shut the fuck up. Okay. <laughs> so even if our bosses and our colleagues treat us like absolute dog shit, we have to serve that up in a sir sandwich. We have to thank them. So when it comes to showing dedication, we get to be dedicated to whatever we want to be dedicated to. You know, want to thank you, sir, for the opportunity to let me talk today. I want you to know I'm dedicated to our team and our mission. We can be dedicated to finishing a med board, to being the best, you know, finishing a drug treatment program, to finish, to taking good care of our family. We get to be dedicated to whatever we are dedicated to. Does that make sense? Now, when you're, when you're talking to, let's say, managers or employers, mm -hmm. I'm assuming it, there's, there's an implied sense of needing extra time off. Often. And Often. I, I know that's, that falls under... Oh, FMLA. Yeah, FMLA. Yeah. So they can't deny you that. But they can make your life shit, can't they? Yes. And that's why we have to control the narrative. Yeah, it would be so easy to say, you know what, it's it's none of their business. It's HIPAA. I'm only going to talk to HR. But let's get real. We have to control this narrative. If our bosses are just are going to put us on a um, you know, an improvement plan um, because they feel like we're slacking, you know, that's going to make our life even harder. Friends, going through rehab, going through treatment, going to a counselor, getting help is fucking hard enough. Let's control the narrative and try to make this as easy as possible. Regine says it perfectly. Malicious compliance. Oh, that's a great word. Oh, I like oh, that phrase. Yeah. Malicious compliance. Well, I haven't heard that before, but it really captures the sentiment. Mm -hmm. Ian must be a writer. <laughs> the person you said Ian wrote that, right? That was Regime. Oh, Regime. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. That, that's Malicious a compliance. perfect phrase. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So I want to go through some examples to show how this is a little bit different to make this as succinct as possible. Um, so I'm going to walk through, I'm, you know, we're going to crawl, walk, run. So we just went through the six steps. Now I'm going to introduce it. Oh, first we're going to thank them. Sir, 
Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak on my own behalf today in court. Two, introduce our elephants, okay? Of course, I feel nervous, but I made some notes to help me stay on point in respect of the court's time. Three, own it, okay? After my last deployment, I made a lot of bad choices. I started drinking too much, I had problems at home, and I got into a fight. Four, epiphany. After I got arrested, my friend talked to me about PTSD and I started to see a counselor. My PTSD is no excuse for what I did, but now I really understand why things went so bad so fast. Five, ask for buy-in. My hope, Your Honor, is that I can continue to get help for my PTSD and my alcohol use. I wish I could go back and change everything. Thank them, show dedication, okay? Sir, I thank you for your time. I thank you for allowing me to speak. I want you to know that I'm dedicated to my sobriety, to our mission, to my fellow soldiers, and I deeply respect your decision. Whatever that is, thank you. That's that. That is that. Point. Yeah, I, the, the owning it and the, the thanking them, mm -hmm. I think does a lot. Whenever I was talking with um, folks who were going up for parole, when I, when I worked in prison, I would always say, you know, an apology has three steps, a good apology. Own it, make no excuses, and ensure that it will never happen again. And then of course the implied is shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. And we would practice it and we would role play. And, you know, because that's all a judge wants to hear. That's all anybody wants to hear is, you know what? I, I fucked up. I own it. I really hurt people. And if I'm given the opportunity to go on parole, I will show up to my parole hearings. I will show up for my PO. I will make sure this never happens again. And gosh, if I had a nickel for every time someone would be like, but I wouldn't have done it if. And I'm like, oh, uh, no, yeah. no. Um, but it's so important that we stay within, you know, and, you know, stay within this structure because the structure works. The structure works. Whether you're going before the parole board, whether you're going before the HR or the CEO, the structure works. It would have saved my marriage had, had, had my husband actually followed through with any apologies. We, that was actually something we would argue about all the time is he was, why do you always need an apology? I said, an apology, it tells that you recognize what you did wrong and that you mean not to do it again. Mm -hmm. That's so important in our relationships. Yeah. And, and it, it works on that level and it works all the way up to, to higher levels. It now, does. We did get, Regine did post a question yeah, uh, yeah. earlier. Sorry, I, did, I almost missed that one. Oh, I'm um, so glad. How do you deal with people that you want to connect with that just want to deflect or ignore the problem. So you're recognizing the ele elephant in the room and they're maybe not wanting to recognize it because they would just like to pretend things are good. Okay. So this happens a lot in sobriety. Let's talk about that for a minute. Cause this is, a, what a great question, by the way. Thank you so much for taking the time to put that in. 
So in sobriety, this happens a lot. Not everyone is going to celebrate our owning our mistakes and wanting to change. So I'm, I'm imagining that this goes back to the first set of um, the, the first. Yeah. Okay. This was during uh, our pause. It came through. I just missed the, the comment. Oh, okay. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. What we have to kind of sit back and realize is we have to remember the big two. Not, and this goes back to our last episode. Not everybody believes change is possible or wants to change. And there's a lot of stuff that is very, very much out of our control. So, you know, in, in, in kind of 12-step language, we, talk, we say, you know, if I didn't create it, if I can't control it, if I can't cure it, those three C's of addiction, then I have to let it go. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, also, you know, from 12-step programs, we talk a lot about, you know, the, the serenity prayer. And there are a lot of different versions of that that I love. But my favorite version is, you know, God, grant me, or higher power, universe, grant me the serenity, the peace, to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know that that's me. I say again, the wisdom to know that the only thing I can change is me. When other people deflect or take our very well-meaning elevator speech and distort it, it's really frustrating, but mm. there also is not shit we can do about it. It says a lot more about them than it does about us. And there's really nothing we can do to control that. We can't cure it. We didn't create it. So that's that a is, warning sign for you that they are not the tribe member. They're not somebody that you can... I, I hate to say it's not somebody you want in your life because a lot of times it's family that ends up being like that. Um, but they're not somebody that you can be around during your healing process, maybe. It's possible. It's possible that you're reflecting to them something that they feel themselves. We see this a lot in the sobriety and in, in sobriety and in addiction studies because there's there's something called codependence. You know, there there are a lot of people who who are who can be very invested in our illness. Mm. Um, and, and even if that's PTSD or depression, there can be folks who identify themselves through our illness. And that's hard. And we have to remember that when we choose to get help or we choose to get sober or we choose to get counseling, we are changing the terms of the relationship. They didn't sign up for that. We're, we're making that change. And they didn't necessarily sign up for that. And a lot of times with sobriety, especially, and oh, God, you know, this is, this is hard. This is hard. Not everybody wants to see you joyous, happy, and free. Not everybody, not everybody wants to see us sober mm -hmm. or healed. And that sucks. It doesn't make them a bad person. It might just make them broken. It's going to hurt. I'm going to encourage you to really talk with your individual therapist about it. Talk with your sponsor about it. 
If you're in a 12-step program like CODA, Codependence Anonymous, or ACOA, that's you know Adult Children of Alcoholics, or AA, or NA, or any of the wonderful 12-step programs that, by the way, friends, are all available online, no excuse. You don't have to go to the local you know, church basement or community center anymore. Talk to your sponsor about this. Talk to talk to someone about this. And my new favorite acronym from my friend Lisa, Q-tip, Q-T-I-P, quit taking it personally. Oh, I like that. Quit. Oh, I do too. I wish I'd known it a few weeks ago. I could have used it. (laughs) I just heard it last Thursday. Quit taking it personally. Going through this healing process, you know, you're going to be talking with a therapist. This is hard. Interpersonal relationships are hard. They are hard. But I also want to stress that this is going to be the exception and not the norm. This will be the exception and not the norm. Giving your elevator speech, because it's so succinct, it's so to the point. There are going to be people who are going to be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not here to hear this. They might tell you to take a long walk off a short pier. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Mm. And it's going to hurt like hell. Yeah. That, and, that, that, I can... and that's part of this process. How many people do you see that that when they try and open up and and come against a brick wall of, of somebody in their life who's who's not willing to help, how much harder is it for them to continue the healing process? It's it, that's a great question. It's not. Um, the truth tends to really set us free. Um, and I see this a lot in recovery. I see this a lot with my clients who are struggling with addiction. This is where I see that the most. Um, you know, they'll tell a parent, you know, hey, I'm going to rehab. And they're like, ah, you don't have a problem. You know, oh, there's some nothing wrong with you. Ah, so you drink too much, or oh, you know, you're choosing this. You know, you're you're making like as if as I said, addiction's a choice. Um, and yeah, that hurts. And you know, you need to really. It's it's so important to understand that we have to be around people who are going to love us and honor us and respect this journey. Sobriety is not easy. Coming back from PTSD is not easy. Depression's not easy. It's like hanging out with a flat earther. What the fuck? Like, really? I mean, how how serious can that relationship be if they are not going to recognize a huge part of your life? Mm-hmm. And they're going to choose not to recognize that and choose not. And maybe they're not able to support you. Maybe, you know... We don't get mad at dogs because they can't fly. You know, dogs bark. They don't fly. It is what it is. And that's why talking with your sponsor, talking with a counselor, talking with a a trusted friend, talking with a peer support group, that's going to help you through this. Maybe we have really unrealistic expectations. Not everyone's going to get woke because you, you decided to, you know, quit shooting up. Not everyone is going to be supportive because you're going to rehab or because you're getting the help you need. That is tough. Is it ideal? No. Does it hurt like hell? Absolutely. Yeah. Have you learned where not to invest your time? 
Friends, we only have so much bandwidth. You only have so much bandwidth. And if you're putting all your resources into a bag with holes in it, you'd be, you'd be much better to, to take that time and put it into sponsorship or put it into making new friends or put it into your therapy or finding a peer support group. That's going to hurt. It's going to hurt like hell. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, having that tribe definitely helps in, in all things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and it sucks. I'm not, I'm not going to bullshit you. It, it sucks, but it's really much better to know. It's much better to know the truth will set you free. And um, I, I don't know if I hope, I really hope that that answers your question. And if it doesn't, I, really invite a follow-on because I really want to answer your question. If I'm not answering it well, I want to unfuck that. So uh, while I'm kind of waiting for a response there, what I'll do, if it's all right with you, Katie, is I'll kind of go through the second example of the, the elevator speech for, um, you know, for, for work. Yes. And then we will talk about your workbook or your, um, um, your quick, reference guide real quick before we head out. So Fantastic. we mention of that. Absolutely. And I'll just go through this one real quick. Because mm -hmm. again, 30 seconds or you're doing it wrong. So ma'am, I'd like to thank you and our work team for giving me an opportunity to address all of you today. I feel nervous talking to the team because I worry you may not be able to relate to my military service. Since I got out of the military, adjusting to civilian life was not as easy as I thought it would be. I've had problems connecting with people here at work, and I've struggled in personal ways. Recently, a buddy of mine committed suicide, and that was really hard. I went to see a counselor, and I got diagnosed with something called PTSD. I realize there's a lot of stigma about PTSD, and I'm lucky to have a team that is as supportive as all of you. And I believe that with your continued support, I can really make a full recovery. I want to thank you all for the time to hear me out. I want you to know I'm dedicated to this company, to this team, and to our project. Straight to the point. Straight to the point. And especially if you've got a group of people, friends, only a monster would be like, wow, fuck you. <laughs> only a monster and somebody or a psychopath or somebody who really just doesn't like being employed is going to say that in front of others. The more people you have, the better. Unlike the first elevator speech, this is a group project. Peer pressure all the way. So that's, I'm, I'm wondering if there are any other questions for that. My problem is that there are monsters out there and, and mm -hmm. I do worry how coming up against a monster can, can possibly hinder people. You know, it, I'm so glad you brought that up because there is, in the book I address this, um, you have to talk about bullying and bullying in the workplace. And we have to get real about that. Um, and it's an uncomfortable subject, which is why we have a whole chapter devoted to it. There are fucking monsters out there. There are, absolutely. to see us <laughs> and kill ourselves and, you know, go on a homicidal rampage. There are those people out there who do not want us to do well. And um, we need to know how to address bullying, how to identify it, 
And um, there's a wonderful book um, by Robert Sutton called The No Asshole Rule that I that I reference in the book. And he gives this wonderful um, list. It's called Sutton's Dirty Dozen, S-U-T-T-O-N. And it's totally worth a Google search. Um, and, and read the book. It's fantastic. But we talk about how to identify bullying. And, um, and what do we do when there's a bullying situation? And there, again, there's a lot of research out there on this. Um, and we'd be crazy not to use it. So get into the research. There, there's a wonderful book called The Bully at Work. I can't oh, you're, you have that as a link in your book. Yes, I remember oh, that one. Yeah. I don't remember the author off the top, but um, just so important. I just happen oh. to have the book here. So let me see. Girl, <laughs> this is why you make $1.2 million a year. <laughs> Someday. Someday. Sutton's Dirty Dozen you have listed in here. Yeah. The Bully at Work yeah. you have listed here. And uh, the Asshole Survival Guide too. Oh, so yeah. There's a lot of resources at the back of this book. Yeah, that is a good one. That is a good one. Now, speaking of resources, because I want to make sure that we share this one. Um, you recently came out with a workbook to help people yes. assess themselves. And this is a free um, offering that you can get right now on your website. Um, I believe it's going to be in your newsletter as well. But if you go to mm -hmm. uh, militarycounselingusa.com, I'm putting that link in the chat right now. And oh, then you click SA, on no USA. So military counseling S as in Sierra. SA, sorry, yes. Yeah. And you click on the Soldier's Guide to PTSD and scroll down. You have your free workbook and download here. This is a no-cost download the guide self-assessment to help you get started. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Katie helped me put this together. So it looks good <laughs> thanks to her. And, and it is, and it really goes through uh, kind of what we talked about during our last visit. Um, this, is, this is a way to um, kind of take a look at what PTSD is not and what it is, and to really look at our symptoms and compare it to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Um, because when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder, we have to know our diagnosis better than doctors, better than our chain of command, better than anybody, better than anybody, uh, so that we can really properly advocate for ourselves and for others. So if you have somebody in your life who is struggling with PTSD, this would be a great guide for you also. So thank you. Yeah, that's Military Counseling SA, so SierraAlpha.com. And that link is in the chat right now. I will also make sure that that link will be in our description. So for anybody watching after the live broadcast, just scroll down a little bit to the description. It'll be one of the top links. And of course, if anybody wants to download um, a, a, quick, uh, a quick read of the book, if you'd like to go ahead and do a free download, it's thesoldiersguide.com. And, and that one's also in our description as well. So there'll be a lot of resources because we want to be able to get the word out about this. Mm -hmm. We want to share it. We want to get people to start seeking the help they need. Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody writes a book on PTSD for the money or the fame. <laughs> but you are doing a good service and people need all the help they can get because military or not, excuse me, not military, but mental illness in general has such a stigma that we're working against that anytime somebody can find a resource for help, 
it's a good thing. I appreciate you saying that. I give so many fucks about this. I care so much. And, uh, you know, please, if, if your readers have any questions, your listeners have any questions, don't assume I have a life because that's like not a thing. <laughs> Email me. Reach out to me. It would be an absolute pleasure to connect with you. And I mean that. Well, thank you, Virginia. Thank you so much. And we went over time again, but we, we had to. There was just, just like last time, there was so much information. We just had to get it all out there. So I thank you for hanging out for as long as you did with us tonight, because I know we did go over a normal time, but I think it was worth it. I think our, our audience, especially the listeners who catch it after the fact, they've got some great resources to help them to get to, to work through how to communicate this because that is definitely a big step for a lot of them. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I, again, thank you to our sponsors too, because without our sponsors, we wouldn't have this show. Uh, we wouldn't have the ability to do this on Facebook and YouTube and our podcast. So thank you again to Joe. Thank you again to Rebecca. And if you guys aren't catching her Facebook lives, I believe they're every Wednesday right now, but she did mention possibly Thursdays. Um, it's a great time to hang out, listen to her, read some of her stories. She's a fabulous reader or just hang out and chit chat with her because she just kind of hangs out with everybody. And I love that interaction with readers. It's wonderful when you can just kind of sit and have a chat. That's cool. Katie, thank you so much for your time. I, I just really deeply, I deeply value you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I do. I value you. I value this community and I'm so thankful. Thank you. Thankful to every, thanks to everybody who, who hung out and thank you for asking questions and thank you for great comments and um, thank you for caring about what we do because it, it matters. It does matter. It absolutely does matter. So again, guys, thank you for hanging out. Uh, we'll be back next week as always. And until then, take some time to take care of yourself so that you can have a great week. <laughs>